There were times when I thought, what in the world have we done? What in the world? This is so hard, especially during tantrums, because it kind of, in those moments, everything's clouded. Your judgment and your, just the way you're thinking about it all, everything's clouded. Don't give up. These are the hard, this is hard. And you're in the throes of it, but don't give up. I would also say, find someone to talk to, whether it's a friend or a counselor person. I did, I did visit with a woman who's a counselor who also just happened to be a friend, but it was so good to just empty my bucket and to hear that she, she was a safe place. I would say find someone safe to talk mm-hmm. to who's not going to judge you for saying, I love my child, but right now I don't like my child at all. I mean, we can say that about biological kids too, but there's something with adoptive you, f- you feel bad acknowledging that you're struggling. So finding a safe place in someone to empty the bucket and to be able to um, find encouragement there is important. Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and this is a resource developed by Mark Inc. Ministries. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ, exists for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. My wife is here in the studio today with with some guests, and we want to introduce them to you and the topic for this resource. Sharon? Thanks, Chuck. And I'm very excited about the interview that we have scheduled today. We have Karen and Jim Weaver in the studio with us, and we have known Karen and Jim for a long time. We have some incredibly funny memories of Jim coming on vacation with us, with our boys, and we won't go into all of that right now, but just say that he is very human. Jim and Karen are going to share with us their own story of help and hope of experiencing the adoption of a special needs child. Jim and Karen, welcome and tell us a little bit about yourselves. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here and thank you for the very uh, human introduction. <laughs> Um, in the summer of 2005, our church had sent us away for three months of a sabbatical. We had been seven years into a new church work, and it was tiring. We were exhausted, and um, one of our elders felt like it would be, be a good idea for us to get some time away. So we went away, and I remember over that summer uh, doing a lot of reflecting together on where we had been and just wondering what was next for us and feeling like uh, God had more for us and that maybe he was going to um, move us in new directions, but we didn't know where that would be. But we just felt sort of unsettled a little bit and restless. Came out of that summer and Bethany Christian Services, which is a local adoption agency, they're nationwide, they publish an insert for churches. And on those inserts, they'll, they'll put the picture of a child, a waiting child from around the world, from all different countries. And these are all children that have some kinds of special needs. They would come across my desk. Um, I would usually look at them. They'd sit on my desk for a day or two, but then I'd either hang them on a bulletin board or pass them along to somebody else. And uh, But this one child came across my desk, and he sat there for a week, two weeks. I would come into the office, and I'd find myself holding his little insert and just looking at him in the eyes, reading his story, and starting to think about what family in my church would ever you know, feel like they'd be up for adopting a child like this. And, um, and it stayed there on my desk for a while. Probably about three weeks or so. And then Jim came home and said to me, hey, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that? He said, I've been praying for this uh, little boy's picture from Bethany that came across my desk. And I was washing the dishes. And I said, oh, tell me about him. And he said, well, he's little. He's 18 pounds. He is um, got some special needs. 
I said, oh, really? And so he started listing off the special needs. And the last special need he said was, and he doesn't have arms. (laughs) And I said, what are you saying? And are you asking me to adopt this child? And uh, he said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not asking you to adopt him. I'm just asking if maybe we could pray for him. And I said, good thing, because we have four little girls ranging at the time. They were about three to eight or nine and I said, yeah, because you're a busy pastor of a church. We have four daughters. Our, our hands are full. So the only way that I would ever even consider adopting a child is if the Lord just kind of two-by-foured me over the head. So you should just go back in your little prayer closet and pray for me. And I really said that. And that's exactly what Jim did. And he went and he prayed. And he said, the last thing he said to me that night was, but you might feel different when you see his picture. So about two or three weeks later, he handed me the picture that had been on his desk on a Sunday morning in front of another woman, which was good thinking on his part. (laughs) And he handed me the picture, and it was this little boy with blonde hair and blue eyes who looked more like he was 18 months old instead of four years old. And I cried. And I was captivated by the sweet little look on his face. And it was in that moment that I knew something was happening, but I was really afraid of what was happening. And so we brought his picture home and we showed our daughters and they were enthralled with his picture. And the girls said, well, what, why doesn't he have a mommy and a daddy? And what, why doesn't he have full length arms and all these issues? And, um, we decided we were going to pray for him. And so we plastered his picture up on the fridge and he became fridge boy. Um, and we prayed for him for a long time through November And then at the end of November, we were eating dinner one night, and our daughter Megan, who was eight at the time, looked at us and said, well, why can't we just adopt him and be his forever family? And I dropped my fork, and I looked down, and Jim was in a heap of tears at the table because I knew that something was going to have to happen in my children because I had a lot of fears. We decided at that point we would call Bethany, and we would find out what other information we could find out about him. But little did we know that to find out information, you had to fill out paperwork. And so I told the lady on the phone, I said, well, we're not adapting him. Like, we just want to find out about him. And so she said, don't worry. And uh, she said, by the way, there's already um, three other families on the waiting list for him. And I thought, score. That's great. Now we know who to pray for, you know. And um, so we, she said, in order to find out this information, can we at least put your name on the list? And I said, sure. Go ahead. And then in December that year, we got a call saying that two families had taken their name off the list. And were we still wanting information on him and interested? And I I didn't know what to say at that point. I think we said, well, yeah, we're still interested, you know, still thinking this other family was going to adopt him. And January rolled around. It was after Christmas. And they called and told us everyone had taken their name off the list but us and said, do you want this child I was home by myself with Lauren, who was probably five or six, and um, I just said yes. I mean, there's more to say, but I had gone from, no, I don't want to adopt at all, to, yes, if I don't, he's going to be lost forever, and who will love this child? And I found my heart being broken for him. And so that's how Mm-hmm. Our process started through a picture. A picture really does speak a thousand words. We had also learned that Roman was getting to an age where he was going to be moved on from an orphanage where he was in Ukraine that took care of smaller special needs kids, younger special needs kids, and be moved on to a higher level orphanage, a level four institution 
for children that have severe significant special needs and they stay there till they're 20, 21, 22 years old, sometimes even later than that. And he'd be lost essentially. He wouldn't make anybody's list for adoption. And we would eventually get to visit that orphanage and see uh, the children that grow up there and their lives and it put it in a wholly different perspective for us just to see where he would have ended up. So for us, it was like God kept him. Um, The orphanage director hid him even as he, he was getting older. He should have been moved on a year before we ever adopted him. She had a special uh, thing for him. He had a, you know, a place in her heart for him and kept him for us. And so we're thankful for, for that. You know, as I listen to this story, looking at the two of you as you're talking and walking through this story, it seems to me as though you were carried along, uh, that God had worked initially, Jim, in your life, and then Karen had some work to do in your life, but all the way over in the Ukraine, he was working on somebody else's life, not just Roman's life, but the people who were caring for him. How much were you told about his condition? What specifically were you told about his condition? Well, it said on the little paper that we got from Bethany, I'm trying to remember exactly how it said, but it said something like he had microcephaly. He was not ambulatory, so he was not walking. He had an unrepaired cleft palate. And then it said, and a host of other anomalies um, and unknowns cognitive delays. He was globally delayed in all ways. So he's not speaking. He's not walking. Mm-mm. He has no arms and a whole variety of other things that they didn't tell you about. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know until we brought him home. No one had ever looked in his ears with an otoscope. And it wasn't until we got him all the way home that we realized that in his left ear, the ear canal is closed off. And so there was no way to even see an ear canal. So they were like, well, he has the bones of hearing. So they put a hearing aid on it. And it wasn't until 09, after he'd been home for a year, that we he developed a big infection and they busted through that and discovered that he had 5% of an eardrum. And they grafted skin, built an eardrum and all that here in the U.S. But over there, mm-hmm. so we didn't know he, he couldn't hear a anything. Big, a big part of his speech delay was that he couldn't hear. He had no hearing in one ear and very little hearing in the other ear. And then he had a cleft, an unrepaired cleft palate and he's four years old. So he's not eating solid food, which is why he's 18 pounds at four years old. So it's just, you you know, the whole package of things, you know. Tell us about when you first saw him. Well, we actually first saw him before we adopted him because we ended up adopting another son. The first time we saw him was when we were adopting Nicholas Mm -hmm. in 2006. And we drove six hours to his town for a 30-minute visit. It was worth the drive. I remember feeling like he really exists when we saw him because, you know, we would gotten so many videos and pictures and different things. And then we cried, I mean, just to see him. But what was really interesting is he didn't know us, but they were telling him, this is your mama and your papa. But we weren't staying. He was terrified of us. But when we went to leave, Roman hardly ever cries, even still. But he wailed when we left. When we left. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just cried and cried, and it was really, really hard to leave him. Mm-hmm. And so that was our first time we saw him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our church was able to go on a mission trip that summer to his orphanage. That's a whole other story, but they were able to go, and Jim went, and my mother-in-law and our daughter, Caitlin, went as well, and they all got to see him. And we got to take our pediatrician with us, too, which was really important. Mm-hmm. We had gone for one reason, but the the secondary reason 
was to get as much information about Roman as we could so we could be prepared for him when he came home. So when the orphanage workers weren't paying attention, you know, our doctor would pull out a stethoscope and check his heart and examine him. And we were making a list of things, you know, just to be as prepared as we could. But the Lord used all of that in us and, and just that time with him to, to really begin the attachment, I think, process for us. I was doing some reading ahead of our time together on some of the things that you should be aware of in adopting a special needs child. And that was one of the things that one person said, if you can take your doctor with you to meet the child and to prepare you or get as much information ahead of time so that when you bring the child home, your medical people are ready to hit the road running with your child. So that was amazing that you could do that. Because we didn't have adequate facilities there, he could only go so far, the doctor, that is, to, to kind of really assess what, what Roman was dealing with. But, you know, in private discussions after meeting Roman, he could say, you know, there's some cognitive delays here for sure. There's some hearing problems here. His heart sounds good. And something that happened before we went over for that trip was we got a message from the orphanage that miraculously they found Roman up and walking one day on his own. And now our kids had been praying specifically for months that he would learn how to walk. And we had taken the video to the top pediatric orthopedist at AI Hospital and showed him the video and said, do you think this boy will walk? And he said, I would I would plan on him not walking. He even, actually said, yeah, I would um, venture, you shouldn't be worried if he's going to walk or not. You should be worried if he can even think About walk. walking. Because of the way he appeared. He appeared kind of lost, his, his gaze. You could tell that Roman wasn't thinking about normal things. And he, there was an institutional autistic aspect to his life there. But he's up running around one day. And from that point on, he's been running. You you mentioned that uh, before you adopted Roman, you adopted another child. Was this also a special needs child? Yes, not to the degree that Roman is. Uh, our other son, Nicholas, was younger. We adopted him at 21 months, and he had an unrepaired cleft palate, and he was born with a double cleft lip. And so he still has some speech issues because of that. But he's doing fine today. I mean, for the most part, he's developmentally on track. He's act physically, he's very much on track. Um, but you know, he's still catching up with speech and things like Where that. Where did this adoption fit in the timeline, as far as Roman's concerned? Let's see. It was 2006 January when we started filling out the paperwork for Roman, and it was a November 2006. It was the third Friday in November. And we got a phone call from our adoption agency and our social worker telling us to sit down. She had some news. So it was almost at the same time. It was, yeah, like 11 months after we had filled out the paperwork but for Roman. Had, but you had not yet... We had not adopted made him. A, made a commitment to Roman? Oh, yeah, we had. The commitment was made. You two were on the same page at that point. But prior to that, you were looking to adopt anyhow, correct, with Nicholas? No. 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 Okay. So what happened was we started the process with Roman. We filled out the paperwork. We were waiting. It's a roller coaster all that time during all those months from January to November. And then in November of 2006... We received the phone call saying that there was a governmental error in Ukraine and we could not have Roman for another 14 months. And we were devastated. I mean, in that one phone call, Roman went from being this little boy with all these issues and things that we were adopting to, that's my son. And you're telling me I can't have my son 
for 14 more months when he is medically needy and all that. And so we were devastated. I mean, I was wailing on the phone and weeping. I could hardly hear what she was saying. And she was like, well, don't hang up because there's more. And I said, Gwyneth, how can there be more? And we were both on the phone and she said, Ukraine has unprecedentedly offered you the opportunity to adopt another child if you would like because your dossier is going to expire. So if you want to adopt another child with lesser needs, more correctable needs, they're saying you can. But we had that was a Friday. She said, we have to know by Monday. And you would travel in three weeks. And it would be over Christmas. So, you know, she said, so you have a couple options. You can either say no to this other child, yes to Roman, and wait the 14 months. You can say yes to this other child and no to Roman altogether. Or you can say yes to this child and then yes to Roman when he becomes available. So we gathered everybody, our family and some close friends, and said, will you pray with us this weekend? We, We don't know. But we both hung up the phone and said, well, we think we're supposed to do option C, which is both. But we don't know how that will happen. And so the kicker was, she said as she hung up, she was like, well, if you decide that you want this other child, you you have to come up with um, $32,000 within a week. So I thought, okay. So we prayed. We just prayed about it. We thought, well, if God, if this is what God has, then he will make a way. And so that Monday came, we talked with everyone. And um, on that Monday, about an hour before I called Bethany to tell them, yes, but we don't know how it's going to work, a woman in our church called us and said, we heard about your situation and we don't want to sway you, but if you think you're supposed to adopt this other child, um, my husband and I want to give you the full amount. And I said, do you realize how much that is? And she said, yes, yes, I do. But we can liquidate some things and we can have it within a week. And so Bethany was able to find some grants. So it was a, they ended up giving a little less than that 32000 but it was still just amazing. And so I was, we called Bethany and said yes. And then after we called, an hour after we called, your Jim's mom called and said, Dad and I have been praying about it. And we think that if you're supposed to do this and all the things fall together, that we're willing to move in and take care of the girls so you can go for however long. So that's how Nicholas's adoption came about. And we did leave three weeks later and we came back uh, nearly seven weeks later at the end of January with Nicholas Igor Weaver. Now, I could almost hear somebody who's listening to this story. I could see their heads spinning at this point, wondering how in the world do you pray the kinds of prayers that you prayed and receive the answers that you received? Is that going to be true of everyone or are you the exception to the rule? As you have doors slammed in your face, you pray and then the doors open. You needed money, you pray, and the money comes. Uh, you needed X, Y, or Z, and X, Y, or Z comes. Uh, what would you say to the person out there who is listening to this and might say, yeah, right, uh, that's just not the way adoptions take place? Well, adoptions, any, any international adoption, but also domestic adoption at times, it's a roller coaster ride. There's lots of disappointments along the way, a lot of heartbreak in the whole process, and so that's a given. And we we knew that from other experiences that people had told us about. We had prayed about a lot of things in our life up to this point, asking the Lord to open doors for different things in our life. And and sometimes, you know, sometimes He didn't open those doors. But over that summer, before all of this even hit the radar for us, we had been praying for the Lord to deepen our walk with Him and sensing that we weren't walking by faith the way that He wanted us to. 
And then it would just seem so strange, you know, that the fall would roll around and all of this would become our life. And we've learned how to pray during those couple years through the whole process. That's when we learned how to pray very differently, to pray through those obstacles and those closed doors that seemed like they were closed. And, and my perspective on it is that when you align yourself with God's purpose for your life, and it's different for every person, God doesn't call everybody to do what he's called us to do. But he did call us to this. And when we aligned our lives with his purpose and began to pray along those lines, we started to see things happen that we had never seen uh, before in answers to prayer. So, Karen, when you received the phone call, you said you went hysterical. It's human to be hysterical when God seems to be saying no at that point to you. But he, he clearly wasn't saying no, but it sounded like he was. And getting in the waiting room is always one of the hardest places to be. We like a yes, we like a no, but we don't like a wait. Tell us about when you brought Roman home. When we brought Roman home, there was the initial excitement to have him in our home and our family members coming over to see him. Everybody was excited to see Roman because for two years they had been on this journey with us. And I might say that, yeah, the Lord put us in the waiting room for Roman's adoption, but had he not, we would have missed the blessing of Nicholas. Nicholas was planned in between, <laughs> you know, and now we can see all these years later how the boys need each other and how they are a real support for one another. I mean, they share a room together. They sleep in bunk beds together. And even though Nicholas is younger, he is Roman's protector. He's looking out for Roman. So the Lord provided what they both needed emotionally for each other in, in being adopted. So that's a different side. It didn't take long for things to get very, very hard at home. I'll let Karen kind of comment on just how... <laughs> things got very difficult in those first six months. Well, Nicholas, you know, had been adopted the year before. And I'd say probably took a good 10 months of him being home. Uh, he went through a terrible tantrum time, and it was really stressful. He was 21 months. So, I mean, terrible twos. Isn't that kind of commonplace with children who are adopted when they're brought home? There's Yes. Well, and children who have been institutionalized, like in Eastern Europe and other places, it's far worse. It's much harder. He was not in a foster care situation. I mean, it was like a free-for-all in the orphanage. We saw some really hard things when we were there that just would take your breath away. And so he's coming home to this environment, Nicholas, where, you know, you're being told no and you have to listen and he didn't know English. And so those first 10, 11 months were really, really hard. How about attaching to you? Did he... Nicholas? Yeah. Did he attach to the family? He did, despite all the tantrums, loud, long tantrums every day for a long time. So when you're... Yeah, describe that when you talk about a tantrum, because a regular two-year-old tantrum is one thing, but I've seen tantrums in children, like, I think I know what you're describing. So describe for our listeners what you're talking about. The kind of thing where, if you, it, we called them OMs, orphan moments, because we had to help our girls understand, because they had never seen anything like this. And it would involve, he actually tried to hurt himself, Nicholas initially, throwing himself on the ground. We contemplated buying him and Roman actually helmets during that time, because it was so violent. And then you know, typically you could put a child on timeout and kind of let them work it out. But you couldn't do that because they he would hurt himself. And so then what you would have to do is you would restrain him as much as you could. Um, now, and he would no scream. No one can see what you're doing, but you're holding. It's like you're holding a child in yes. your arms. So yes. you're restraining him by hu yes. hugging him Yes, hard. and his face, he was facing out from me mm -hmm. because if he faced me, he would bite me. 
So he he was facing out from me, and I would have him wrapped, and then he would headbutt me, kick me, flail. And I remember talking to the social worker and saying, is this normal? Should I be doing this? And she would say, do it for as long as you can, but if you can't because you're just done, then be done. But he needs to know the boundary, and you're being loving, you're not yelling, you're being kind, even though he's freaking out. And so sometimes it would be 45 to 60 minutes. And by the time he was done, he was drenched in sweat. I was drenched in sweat. Mm. My other children would be crying in another room because it was really hard on them to see their this new little boy that they thought was the cutest thing just go like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde on him in a matter of a few Mm. seconds. And so it took us a long time for him to finally be not so tantrum-y. And so when we left, that was one of my greatest fears was leaving Nicholas to adopt Roman. What's going to happen? And he had almost a full regression when Roman came home. So you have him regressing and having OMs. And then you have Roman, who spent six plus years uh, being doted on, but never being told no, didn't know how, you know, being thrust into a family environment, also not speaking English, all of his delays. And he also tantrumed, biting, hitting. And his were almost worse in the sense that how do you restrain a little guy who doesn't have full-length arms? He was wiry, (laughs) so it was a little tricky. Um, But it was very similar. And so the adjustment home was, it was tough. Mm -hmm. It was tough. But his didn't seem to happen as often as Nicholas's. Nicholas's were daily for a long time, but Roman's were not every day. I'd say like every other day. Now, Karen, you were um, a full-time stay-at-home mom. Yes. How would would you recommend when someone is entering into this kind of a journey, is it possible to parent children with these kinds of needs if you're not there 24-7? It would be really hard. It would be really hard. And because they also need the reinforcement of your love, that even though they're flipping out, you still love them. I remember saying, Ya te belu blue to the both boys in Ukrainian, which means I love you. You know, Hereshon, it's okay. You know, trying to reassure them that I'm not going anywhere. And I can't imagine not having been there during that time. You know, it was hard, but I also think it was important for them. With all that you're describing, you had to have had some sort of a support system. Why don't you tell us about that, Jim? Our parents, both of our, both sets of parents were really supportive. My parents, when they first found out about this decision, they cried. Uh, They were encouraging. They told us they'd be there and help us in any way they could. Karen had just lost her father. Karen's mother was more afraid initially, but she also became very, very supportive. They moved into our home. They were there for those six weeks that we were away over two Christmases. They did Christmases with the four girls the first Christmas, the four girls and Nicholas the second Christmas, at great you know, personal cost to them. And then when we got home, they continued to provide, I think for us, an important respite along the way. They knew that we needed time away from the kids. That had to be done carefully. We couldn't do a whole lot of time away from the adopted kids at first. But after we got a few months out, we needed our date nights to resume. We needed the time just to, to take a deep breath and reflect on where God had us and how we were going to get through the next week, <laughs> you know. And then along with, with our family our, and our extended family, friends. 
church friends. Uh, we had uh, women who were coming to do laundry for us every week. We had the women in the in the, minist- the adoption ministry of our church provide cleaning, uh, paid for cleaning for two months, and then there was a third month added on. They were bringing meals to us for a couple Almost months. Like four, more than a couple, more like four or five. So four we had months. meals coming because Karen, you know, I'm I, I'm still pastoring, and uh, Karen's taking care of the girls and the boys who are going to school, and she's doing these these OM things. She didn't really say this, but I remember them happening nightly for a long stretch of time. And I remember her wearing out after an hour and me having to step in and do tag team and hold. And we would go into the front room of the house and we'd hold Nicholas until he just kind of gave up. Sometimes they'd, they would last, they'd go an hour. We'd get a little, it would die down for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And then he would be told, no, he couldn't do this or have this. And he'd go right back into him again. And so they would string through the night until he just exhausted himself and fell asleep eventually. So you have four girls and now we have two very special children that have entered the fray of your family. Was there a price tag on the girls because so much attention was given over to the two boys? Was there a personal price tag that your girls had to pay? And if so, what was it? There certainly was. Um, because while we were doing all of that, we weren't giving these young girls at times the attention that they needed. We did what we could. One of the things that I did during those years was um, make sure that once a week I was taking a different daughter out for breakfast. And at times that's that's the best I could do was to take a Wednesday morning, go into work late, take a different girl out, spend time with them. But it was really hard to do a whole lot more than that in terms of extracurricular kinds of things and hobbies and those kinds of because. We had appointments, too. Karen was making trips to the hospital three or four times a week while we were figuring out a plan of treatment for all of Roman's issues. I was taking him there for speech therapy. And so there were there were several years there where uh, we couldn't take on a whole lot more. We couldn't add a whole lot more to our plate as far as you know, what a lot of parents are doing with their kids. Those boys became, for all of us in that family, they became our life, they became, taking care of them became what we did, you know, as a family. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, one of our daughters struggled severely with anxiety. She never had anxiety until we left. And my mom told me after we adopted Nicholas and came home, she took me aside one day and she said, I just need you to know that, you know, so-and-so, this one was weeping every night. Are you sure mommy and daddy are coming home? When, are you sure? I feel like they're never coming back, never. And she would cry herself to sleep. But that was really hard. And I think I was kind of in a fog for a number of years for various reasons. And I don't really remember the, some of those years with them. And I feel bad about that for all four of them. They're, I mean, especially Georgia, who's our youngest daughter. I, I feel like she went from being four to being nine. And I look back at pictures and I'm like, I don't remember that, you know? Um, because emotionally and mentally, we were wrapped up with so much. And how do you how do you deal with that? How do you deal with? Do you live with guilt? Do you condemn yourself? Do you uh, look at your children and feel like they had to pay too high a price, or can you look at it and say God uses sacrifice? Well, I think I finally come to what you just said, which is God uses sacrifice. But for the longest time, I wrestled with guilt. And it's only really been, I mean, Nicholas has been home 10 years, and I'd say in the last probably three years, three years ago or so, I finally found that place of, if it was supposed to be any other way, it would have been. And I had to rest in that, and I had to rest in God's grace that he gives grace, you know? I mean, it was hard on all of us. I was trusting him to meet 
certain needs that I couldn't. But yes, I wrestled with guilt, terrible guilt, just felt really bad for a while and finally came to a place in the last few years where I really feel free of that guilt. It's still somewhat of a bad memory for you, though, because as I'm watching you, folks cannot see that your eyes are filling up with tears and uh, that it is still something that years later now you look back on and say that was a very painful time. Was it hard to love these children when you were having to restrain them? Did you ever think, boy, what a mistake we made? Yes. There were times when I thought, what in the world have we done? What in the world? This is so hard, especially during tantrums, because it kind of, in those moments, everything's clouded. Your judgment and your, just the way you're thinking about it all, everything's clouded. I definitely thought that. I definitely did. But at the same time, I knew, I mean, I had a good friend of ours uh, who came to our church and did an adoption day-long conference thing. And she's the one who said, and I found such freedom in that, you have to remember that God put this child in your family. And if it wasn't supposed to be, it wouldn't be. And I just had to keep telling myself that and come to that. But yeah, it was really hard. And how would you talk to that mother right now who is in the middle of those orphan moments and she dreads she can see it coming she dreads it she feels like she's at the end of her rope help her in that moment what would you say to her i would say don't give up don't give up these are the hard this is hard and you're in the throes of it but don't give up i would also say find someone to talk to whether it's a friend or counselor person i did i did visit with a woman who's a counselor who was also just happened to be a friend but it was so good to just empty my bucket and to hear that she she was a safe place i would say find someone safe to talk mm-hmm. to who's not going to judge you for saying i love my child but right now i don't like my child at all i mean we can say that about biological kids too but there's something with adoptive you, f- you feel bad acknowledging that you're struggling. So finding a safe place in someone to empty the bucket and to be able to um, find encouragement there mm. is important. So, Jim, somebody out there listening to this is considering adopting a special needs child. What advice would you give them beforehand, before you do this, before you sign those papers, before you sign on the dotted line? You should. You should make sure that uh, you have considered to the best of your ability, you've considered what this will mean for your life. Are you prepared for this? What special needs do you feel equipped to handle and to manage? Talk to your doctor, talk to your pediatrician about what these illnesses or disabilities will will mean for you on a daily basis. And make sure that you're going into this with your eyes as wide open as you can. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions and make sure that your motive is right. Make sure that you're not doing this because you feel guilty or because there's some other unmet need in your life. Uh, a lot of people rush into difficult adoptions because they need a project. They don't, they're not having their emotional needs met in their marriage. You're not adopting a little puppy. Right, right. And make sure you're not doing this because you feel guilty for living what you perceive to be a selfish life up to that point. Mm-hmm. And now you feel like, you know, you need to uh, earn God's approval or God's favor by doing something really out there, mm-hmm. you know. Because if you do that, <laughs> God, God may allow you to walk through that door. And he loves you. And he has lessons for you to learn there. And, and he'll still be there with you. But the motivation for this should never be... Um, God's going to love me more if I, if I risk more for him and do more for him. God isn't going to love you any more than he does today or any less than he does uh, today. That's what, that's what we know. 
So Karen, when the parents have signed on the dotted line, their motivations are pure and not as Jim just just described, but their, their motivations are right. Their motivations are pure. They know what they're doing. What should they put into place before they bring this child home? That's a great question. And uh, one that with our second adoption of Roman, we were highly encouraged. First, I'd say when you're adopting a child with special needs, I think any adoption is special needs, but I'm talking about like a physical or cognitive, some kind of need like that. Mm. We were told it's like adopting two kids. And so you have to have that mindset. And so put something into place, have a plan, talk to people in your church or your family, your support system, and have a plan. It also helps emotionally to know. I found with Roman's adoption, knowing that some of the women in our church had rallied around us was really comforting to know that I I didn't feel as alone and to not be afraid to take that help that people give you. So have a plan, have a, a care plan. That's what Bethany Christian Services called it, was a care plan. And I think that was invaluable. And what is a care plan? It was... You know, laundry help, meal help, perhaps coming over and being with your other children, because you need to be with your newly adopted child as much as possible. So allowing other people to come over and clean or cook or bring you meals or take your other kids out for some special things, all that is really important, which allows you to be able to bond with your newly adopted child or planning some date nights down the road, but having that care plan so that frees you from looking around your house and feeling like everything is coming in on you is really, really, really important. You said somebody told you to view yourself as adopting two children. What, what does that mean? Meaning that emotionally and physically, all, in all aspects, it's, it's as though you've, you're bringing two. It's that much of your energy and that much of your time. You know, I mean, it's hard enough bringing one, but just try and envision two. It's, it takes every part of you. And mm-hmm. so if you go in with that mindset that this is, this is a lot, then you'll be better off thinking. It's better to go in and be way over prepared as much as you can. I don't even know that you can really be fully prepared but until it happens. But One thing that you have to give yourself space for mm-hmm. is the grief that comes. You have to grieve the loss of your former life. And I think this is true for parents that, that have special needs children born into their family or if you adopt them. You can prepare for that as much as possible. But when they come into your home and you realize what a what a mess at times your life has become, you begin to grieve the the loss of being able to just go to the beach or the pool so easily with your other children and not have to worry about whether or not your child is going to throw himself on the on the on the ground, uh, whether or not you know your child is going to have a seizure and end up at the bottom of the pool, which happened with Roman. Um, <clears throat> You have to that has and that takes time and then then you start to grieve for your child because you're grieving for what they've lost in their life. They've lost their birth parents. They've lost, in Roman's case, uh, you know, the ability to 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 have a normal life, to have arms. And and now, of course, he's old enough to recognize that he's different from all the other children. And so that takes a toll, you know, on you emotionally and spiritually. And and I've learned from looking at other families that have adopted special needs children that it's different for every family. You know, everybody grieves differently. Everybody works through that process differently. Now, how old are the boys? Roman is 14, almost 15. He's the life of the party. And uh, Nicholas just turned 11. Tell us about their day-to-day life. What does it look like now? They both go to school, and Roman goes to typical school. We made the decision when he entered junior high school to take him out of the particular program he was in, which was a fantastic move. 
And so his current school created a whole program for him and some other kids with special needs. So they are immersed fully in the day-to-day with everyone, which I think is great. They just get pulled out for um, math and reading. And uh, so, yeah, they go to typical school. Nicholas is he's in typical classroom. He's, he's good. What do you see as their future? Roman will spend the rest of his life with us. Um, at, at least, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's a lot of things we've said about Roman that he's already exceed, he's already exceeded our expectations. Would he walk? He walks. Uh, will you know? He he's played on a soccer team. He plays baseball. He plays baseball. You know. Um, <clears throat> you you have to explain that. <laughs> so he does he doesn't have arms, but he has hands. His hands are attached directly to where his shoulders are, mm-hmm. and so he's managed to to hold a bat kind of a, in a special way. And uh, he started with a T, playing T-ball. And his team is a special needs baseball team. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's very appropriate for him. That is amazing. And yeah, but he'll hit a ball out to shallow right field. He doesn't hit it off yeah. the tee now. He can now, do it from He a hits pitch. pitches, overhand pitches. Mm-hmm. And he loves baseball. I have a hard time imagining him ever being able to live independent of us. He can technically do 95% of life on his own. But in the mornings, we have to help him because it would take, for all, it would take him probably two hours soup to nuts to get ready and go to school in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I had to get up and kind of hurry him along and help him. But cognitively, it's not just the physical disabilities with Roman, really. Lots of people have significant physical disabilities. It's the cognitive. It's the thought process. He's, he's just finished eighth grade, but he's more like a second or third grader. So we just don't know yet how far he is going to go with you know his cognitive development right now. And Nicholas? Nicholas is emotionally a little behind for his age. He just finished fifth grade. He still has some speech issues. It's sometimes hard to understand some of what he says, but he's come a long way. He's very active as a wrestler in a local wrestling league. He's he's a phenom when it comes to that. So, you know, for him, it's more attention deficit type of, of stuff, you know, working with him through his learning struggles and challenges. But he's doing, he's doing really good. Okay, Roman is now... 14 years old. Nicholas is 11. You described when you first brought them home during those early years, what you called these orphan moments, the temper tantrums where you had to restrain him. Has that happened recently? Has has that ended? Did it stop? At what point did it stop? Or does it still continue? It doesn't happen as often. I'll say, I'll start with that. It doesn't happen as often. However, a year ago, it'll be a year this July, Roman had... and. What I'm about to say from this past July, it had been at least 18 months before that was the last one. So this past summer, he we were out and he had a massive tantrum, massive. It was all over Nicholas sitting up front too many times, more than, more than him. We went through Michael's and the tantrum was starting and I was praying, oh, please, Lord, he's too big to have a tantrum. He could hurt me really bad. We could hurt somebody else really bad. And so I noticed at the checkout line that it was escalating and... Um, we got outside and I said, okay, son, you, you have to get in now and you need to get buckled. And he said, no. And the next thing I know, he's taken his head and thrown it into the side of our van um, multiple times before I can even get in to block him. And I tried to block him and then I thought he was going down on the ground, uh, but he didn't. Thankfully, I was able to get him into the van. Nicholas climbed in wailing and crying because it's it had been so long since he had seen his brother like this. And he kicked, he tried to hurt me, tried to hurt Nicholas. He threw his head into the side of the inside window of the van. And I called Jim in a panic. What do I do? 
what do I do? I'm sitting in the parking lot. I was crying. I was worried he gave himself a concussion. I had to drive to the doctor's office from there. Thankfully, our pediatrician is a good friend. He came out to the parking lot. And when we got there to the parking lot, the great side is that Roman recognized by the time we got there, he was over the tantrum and he was crying. He hardly ever cries. I said that earlier. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mommy. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. And I just think a lot of it was adolescence Mm -hmm. and the hormones shifting. And Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, I would say like 18 months before that, he was having more frequent tantrums going into adolescence, about 12 years old. And our neurologist actually said, you should just build him a padded room in, in your house somewhere. I said, really? That's all you got? Because he was breaking lamps. He broke a chair. He tried to hurt our dogs. He he was just, he, he would be out. He put a hole in the wall in our kitchen with his head. I mean, it's been a long time. So I would say the tantrums are few and far between, but when they come, they really come. In those moments, I, I'm thinking listeners are probably thinking, and you're still knowing it? He's still living with you? That seems like cause for, I can't do this. This is too dangerous. We, sh- we should probably say that those tantrums are horrible times. But Roman is the most joyful person I know on this planet. He is the happiest kid you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. He is, and I mean this, it's very hard sometimes, but most of the time, he is uh, a pleasure to have around. He's a rock star at school. The kids love him. And I think that if if, if someone could have told me when we were going through those early tantrums and even these uh, pre-adolescent tantrums, this is a season. This will not always be exactly like it is. And there's no guarantees, I know that. But if they could have just helped us to see that this is a season, there's a lot of hormones raging inside of Roman. He's changing a lot. He's got all his special needs on top of that. Stick with him, stick with him. That would have been a great uh, comfort to mm-hmm. us, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. Because he really is the, the life of our house. And he's a lot of fun. He's a, he's a tremendous, tremendous blessing to us. I would add to that his social intelligence is off the charts. Mm-hmm. So while academically, he's probably like second, third grade. Socially, he is on point with all the other eighth graders at school. And he, I agree, he, he is the happiest person I know. The one, one thing that I kept coming back to, someone told me was, well, I know these tantrums are hard when you hit adolescence. But they said, but think about your other kids. You've had how many other teenagers? And you get the lip and attitude and more regular. So you kind of, I guess, get jaded. I don't know. <laughs> but with him, I thought, well... It's kind of a good sign, you know, that's a positive way to look at it. It's kind of good because he's at that age when he should be. Roman's not going to go out and struggle with some of the typical things that teenagers struggle with. And we have to remember that. And this is, this is what we get with Roman through adolescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have other teenage daughters, and we know what adolescence looks like. And that's hard stuff. That's hard stuff. And this is his hard stuff. What about your emotional health, Karen? What are some of the things that you would say to parents who have a special needs child or any adopted child that maybe they're hidden uh, pains, hidden darkness that you had to deal with? When we came home with Nicholas, well, let me back up for a second. Before we left to get Nicholas, I just assumed that I would come back and jump back in to being mom to four girls, and now we would have a fifth, only it would be a boy, and I would figure it out. And it became really evident while we were away, because we were away for so long, over Christmas, um, almost seven weeks, that it became evident to me that I was starting to tank 
emotionally. Um, and it was weighing on me. And then when we came home and Nicholas was having so many tantrums and things that I fell really into what I would find out later would really be post-adoption depression. And I couldn't cope. I couldn't take care of the kids. I mean, I was, and I didn't reach out to anybody because I was ashamed of how I was feeling. Um, and emotionally, I was just drained every day. Jim was coming home early from work every day to help me. And post-adoption depression is something that's very cyclical. You you get better, you start to feel like you, maybe you're coming out of it, but then something can trigger it. Maybe it's a couple days of tantrums, or maybe it's something that you can't do that you wanted to keep up with. And, and it is something that both men and women can struggle with versus postpartum depression, which is women, and it's biologically driven. And so I would say to someone, read about it. I read a book, a great book called Post-Adoption Blues, which was really helpful for me. And after I read that book, I remember I turned to Jim and I said, ah, I think this is me. Um, I wasn't the worst, but I wasn't the least. I was kind of somewhere in between. And I did wrestle for a number of years with that. I would come back and then I would wrestle, and then I uh, finally, um, as I mentioned earlier, met with a friend um, who helped me realize that this is what it was and work through that and empty my bucket and be able to talk about things. Um, so I would say read, reach out, um, and don't be afraid to ask for help. There's no shame in that. We're about to throw our listeners a severe curveball. Because uh, what I'm about to ask you, we haven't even mentioned yet. Roman's life is, a, is about to change again, isn't it? And why don't you tell everybody what's going on? So in the next uh, year, uh, we are going to be making a big move uh, to a big West African city uh, to be a part of a new church planting work there. And um, to go back just a little bit, when we went through the whole process of deciding whether or not this is what the Lord would want us to do with adoption, one of the things on the table then was, if we do this, this might close the door for us ever being able to, to serve the Lord in any foreign mission field, which we had always felt sort of an impulse towards, but weren't sure exactly if that would happen. So we had to kind of say, okay, if we're going to adopt Roman specifically, it will probably mean that we're, we're not going to be on the foreign mission field. But we've seen him make so much progress over these last uh, many years, and he's doing so well, both in terms of his overall health, his uh, behaviors, and all of that, that uh, we feel like he's at a good place where he can handle this now. And then we were invited to, to be a part of this church planting team in West Africa. So he's going to go through another major radical transition and adjustment to life in West Africa. And we don't know what all of what 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 that entails completely we can only imagine and that might mean regression it might mean that you know he's when he's taken out of his familiar setting and he doesn't have his familiar friends and his grandparents around all the time because he's he, he loves his grandparents so again we're back in that place where we're we're praying and asking the lord to meet our needs for whatever lies ahead what drives the two of you to make the decisions you make? I think the love of God for us uh, as his children. We see in what God has done for us a more perfect picture of adoption. Uh, we see ourselves as, we see ourselves in Roman. You know, Roman has short arms. You know, they're always too short to reach out and grab things the way they need to. And our arms, spiritually speaking, are always too short to reach out for God 
and get a hold of him. But God's arms are always long enough to reach out and, and grab us and hold us close. When we were going through those OM moments, uh, we used to always, you know, when we would have time to just kind of take a deep breath later in the evening, we would say, this is exactly what our God has done for us in our orphan moments. Mm -hmm. He throws his arms around us when we're throwing our fits, when we're afraid of our surroundings because everything's new and we don't know what the next day holds for us. Um, he holds us close and he, and he never lets us go. He lets us completely tire ourselves out in his arms and his arms never grow weary of, of holding us. And so at the end of the day, it is a, a deep sense of God's love for us that, and we know he's there for us. We know that uh, wherever he leads us, he'll never abandon us. He'll never let us go. He'll always be there to supply the strength that we need for each day. He doesn't promise us a easy life. He doesn't mm -hmm. promise us a suffering-free life. But we have learned that uh, there's greater joy to be found in the mix of all of that with his, with his care and his grace at work in our lives. Uh, human relationships often show us things about ourselves that we're not too thrilled to see. And I think about having Roman in your family and all of the afflictions in his life. How has having him as your son revealed your own broken places, your own messy places? You know, most mornings, um, I'm a willing participant to get up and help him get ready. But there are mornings that come where I just loathe getting out of bed and helping him get showered and helping him get dressed so he can get out the door on time. There are times where we both loathe having to wipe his rear end after he goes to the bathroom because now he's not the cute little four or five-year-old. He's a 14-year-old man, really. And what I see and what I realize more and more about myself, and I catch myself sometimes, is I realize that I'm not as loving as I thought I was. And I'm not as patient as I thought I was. And it's in those moments that, that I'm reminded that I'm imperfect. And uh, all of my best intentions were just that. They were best intentions. But, but really, um, I'm a sinner. And um, I remember on the front end always worried about, you know, what if my love fails for Roman? What if I get him, and we get a few years into this, and, and all of a sudden I, I realize, I don't, I don't love this kid the way that I thought I would, and I was afraid that I wouldn't love him. And there are times where my love is challenged, it's tested, and, and I'm a frustrated mess uh, as, a, as a father. And then I remember that, that that's exactly why God sent his son Jesus into this world for me, because I am a mess, and I do love imperfectly, and I am impatient. And the great news is that I'm not on a performance standard every day with, with my God, that he sent Jesus into this world to, to pay the penalty for my sins, for my unloving nature, for my lack of patience at times, for, for not being the one who springs out of bed in the morning to care for this broken child. I mean, who wouldn't get out of bed and care for this wonderful broken child who's so needy? Well, Jim Weaver, uh, many mornings doesn't want to do that. And Jesus came and he died for me because he knew I was an imperfect sinner. And so now I know that um, even on my worst day, God still loves me and accepts me as his son, that I've been adopted into his family. I'm not on a performance standard with God. So when I do struggle with the guilt of, of not loving him the way that I should, and when I do question where is God in the mix of all this, I'm reminded that I have a perfect savior who, who loved me and gave his life for me. And I'm also reminded that there's a certain future 
that one day I'm going to live in a world that is not broken by sin. And one day I'm going to see my son, I believe, with full length arms. And I'm going to know and feel what it, it, it's like to be embraced by him that way, you know. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ gives me great hope for today uh, in dealing with my own inadequacies, my own guilt, my own sin, my unloving heart, and it gives me great hope for, for the future. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.